This is a podcast from the Pathologies of Solitude project. In this series, we've been thinking about places and experiences of solitude. Each podcast has been curated by a member of the project research team and draws on contributions from a wide network of collaborators. I'm Heta Howes, and I'm part of that wider network. This is episode seven, The Mind. So far in this series, we've discussed a number of different spaces of solitude. But can we think of the mind as a space of solitude? In everyday conversation, we often refer to the mind as a space. We talk about headspace, for example. But what kind of space is the mind? In fact, when we begin to think about it, do we even know where the mind is? Solitude is not always about the actual physical separation from people. We've all probably experienced at some point being lonely in a crowd. So what might be going on inside us that makes us experience such aloneness? Thinking about the mind as a space of solitude may help us to understand why people experience the same external circumstances in such varied ways. As far as being alone is concerned, one person's delight may be another's nightmare. In this episode, we asked four people to answer our questions to try and get a sense of the mind as a space of solitude. Sarah Garfinkel is Professor of Neuroscience at UCL. How would she describe the mind? I guess I see the mind as an interface or a GUI to the brain and it allows us to access our thoughts, feelings and perceptions. And what about Adam Phillips, who is a psychoanalyst and literary critic? I would be very hard-pressed to describe the mind. I mean, I know what it is to mind something. I know what never mind means. I know what being mindful of something is. But I've never really been able to imagine what a mind is. I mean, I could imagine a figurative picture of it as like an organ for the digestion of experience, say. That's about as good as I can do. Denise Riley is a poet and philosopher. Is the mind for her a kind of space? A highly charged and very interesting space. There's also the notion of the unconscious as a space between people, which I've always found very, very persuasive, that the unconscious is something that hangs in the air between people. And actually sing a historian of psychoanalysis and the curator of this episode. Can we think of the mind as a space? What kind of space? I think if it is a space, it is a variable space. It's some kind of space shifter, if not a shape shifter. And it contracts and it expands. I definitely see the mind as some sort of space in the sense that all the things that occupy it are associated in different ways. So we have associations based on time, when we potentially learnt or encoded it. We have associations based on theme. We have associations based on how it looks and colour. And I guess the mind clusters these different types of associations. Emotion can also cluster things together. And I guess I do sort of see it as a mapping out in space of these various different networks. 
Is our mind in our bodies? The brain and body are intrinsically and dynamically coupled. And if our mind is a manifestation of that, what we think, feel and perceive is also a product of our internal bodily sensations. If yes, where in our bodies is our mind? I would say the heart. That's because partly it's been seen historically through literature and other cultures as the heart having a central role. But my experiments really do support the role of the heart in shaping memories, decision-making, emotion. There are other bodily organs which also very much influence how we think and how we feel. There's wonderful work that's emerging now on the gut. Respiration can also influence emotion and other types of processing. But we know most about the heart, and I, I certainly think the heart is central. The body is imagined as an empty space in which organs may reside, but in which there's a lot of emptiness. And then conversely, what is it to conceive of the mind and the brain as completely dense, completely filled up, up to the edges of the skin, of, of the whole surface of, of the human organism? I do think that that question has a lot to do with imagined interior thickness and the nature of the air outside the body and therefore of what is the airy medium over which thought or indeed the unconscious voyages and through what means does it does it make its set off on its travels. But I also think that the mind is outside of our bodies as well. I think it's in the objects that we surround ourselves with. I've begun to feel increasingly curious about the ways in which certain objects can unlock memories, can unlock experiences. And what does that mean for the way in which we think about the mind? Because I think it it really raises questions about whether we only think of our mind within the space of our head or if we think of it as something much more expansive and almost like a, a substance or a, a layer with which we coat our surrounding environment. Okay, the next question. What are the voices in our heads? What are the voices in our heads? Who are the voices in our heads? The voices in our heads are bulletins from one's bodily self and they are thoughts and feelings and considerations and revisions and preoccupations and worries. They are the whole array of things we're likely to experience. It isn't always great to think of them as voices because it can be too literal and too concrete, though sometimes they feel like voices. Because there is a real sense, I think, in which we are being spoken to by ourselves. I'm not organising these thoughts I'm speaking now. They're just occurring to me. So my picture of it is that mostly unbidden, things occur to us. And then we decide whether we voice them or not. A 
again, it's a history of conceptions of voices as hallucination, as revelation, as messages from the divine or much more prosaic understandings and, and renditions. Our voices are a mixture of, I think, our different selves. So we have our younger voice and maybe a voice now of who we are. What interests me in the idea of self-perception as interior hearing, a sense of hearing where there is no instrument, no physical instrument involved as a phenomenon which establishes the presence of the self to itself, but also as a form of self-presence which is vulnerable possibly to distortions, to exaggerations, to the perception of the interior voice as the voice of another as possibly an unsympathetic or a threatening other. We have eyelids so we can close our eyes, but we have no ear lids. Sometimes the voice in my head is current Sarah, Professor Sarah. And then other times the voice in my head is seven-year-old Sarah. And I may be a little bit more vulnerable. And so depending on a number of factors, my internal voice really differs. I think being in lockdown means that I'm not in the outside world in the same way. I'm not at work. And so Professor Sarah isn't conjured up so much and child Sarah comes out a little bit more in my internal voice. I also think the voices in our heads, oh, it's going to make me cry, can be loved ones and people we're missing. And I think their voices, even though those people aren't with us anymore, we carry their voices with us. And that's also a wonderful thing. They would be members of our family of origin, dissociated or disowned parts of ourselves, friends, lovers, cousins, all sorts of people. Because I think of our so-called selves as a composite of all the relationships we've had in our lives. Why do we have these voices? I think we can only live and survive by thinking about our experience, by reflecting on it. They can keep us company, they can comfort us, they can tell us off and make us be better. And they're maybe there in part because we are social creatures and sometimes it's all not always possible to have people around us and maybe our voice makes us feel less alone. What does it mean to have an inner dialogue? It's just a voice that accompanies you when you're doing things or reflecting on what you've done and how you might be perceived. And I guess it helps us both feel less alone and maybe it helps us to be better, that it allows us 
to see ourselves potentially through other people's eyes, even though it's happening in our heads. What is it like when inner dialogue stops? I really do notice when it does stop, and it stops when I'm absorbed in something else. When I'm absorbed and in the moment, then it disappears. It used to happen when I was younger and I did artwork. It was always the thing that relaxed me most. And now I think it happens when I draw graphs, like scientific graphs. I love drawing them and I feel a real sense of peace. And I think my inner dialogue stops then. Certainly my own research sort of supports this idea that this is constant seesawing between the internal world and the external world. And when we're in the external world, then the internal world and the internal voices get quieter. I can't say whether inner dialogue ever stops entirely because perhaps what has been lost is the ability to listen or the ability to tolerate listening to this inner dialogue. I suppose somebody could lose a cruel and punishing way of talking to themselves and that might be experienced as freeing and as quite a release. But somebody could perhaps also lose a friendly relation to themselves or lose a sort of lively chatter and that could be experienced as a loss. So, next question. What do you think might be happening in our minds when we can't bear to be alone? It may very well be connected to how we're experiencing our bodies at a particular point of time. So perhaps when we are in pain or we're ill or we feel particularly vulnerable, it may be particularly important to know that there is another person present as a helper or a witness or as a source of comfort. I think we're experiencing an absence of something or somebody that we deem to be essential to our well-being. So it's like not having a protective shield. So the experiences in the absence of this object, person, thing, whatever it is, I'm much more vulnerable to the anxieties that assail me. And once again, with most things connected to being alone or being solitary, it always seems to be the case that the reverse is also true. And some of us may find that when we are in pain or vulnerable, it's, uh, it's excruciating to have somebody see us like that. Are there states of mind that make being alone difficult? We've done an experiment looking at loneliness, and this was before lockdown. But what really, really struck me about the data was the strong correlation between anxiety and depression and loneliness. And we don't know what comes first. This isn't causal, it's an association. But what it does tell me is that there's something about the state of loneliness, which is deeply intertwined with feeling anxious and feeling sad. It's very hard to pin down states of mind that make being alone difficult because they may be the very states of mind that also make someone desire solitude. Because I think the question is whether through one's upbringing and early experience one finds the experience of being alone 
bearable, pleasurable, nourishing, useful, etc. And I think people vary greatly about this. So at one end of the spectrum, there are people who are very frightened of being alone. At the other end of the spectrum, there are people who crave being alone and find that they only, in a sense, recover what they think of as themselves when they are alone. What do you think is going on when we can't stand company? I think we're experiencing the company as a demand that is extrinsic to our needs. I am thinking of a bit from Marion Milner's book, A Life of One's Own. She describes herself, for example, being at a club and really, really wanting to enjoy herself, but finding herself thinking about how much attention other people are paying to other people present and how she measures up against other people. And one of the effects it seems to have on her is that the pleasure that perhaps she had expected or desired to find in company becomes unavailable. One person is a very, very different kettle of fish from a medium-sized gathering of about 10 people at a restaurant table or something, which is hell for me because of the tension of feeling that you socially ought to be able to chip in and contribute something, but having too soft a voice or too bad a timing to be able to do that. And then there is the other phenomenon of the large party, where it's fine because you can nip around the edges of it, like a collie dog going around a large flock of sheep. You can just make an inroad and weave among them and go around their woolly legs and whip out again. And, and also you can extricate yourself without being noticed. Are there pleasures particular to solitude? The obvious one is masturbation. And the question then is, what is that? What's going on in that act? It may be true that actually one is never alone. It's just a fantasy that one is alone. And what that would mean is that there are always people present in one's mind, simply because one started off as a social being with a mother and a father and so on. I don't get much pleasure from being alone, so I'm trying to think of something to say. But I think my answer is just no. I think there's a certain kind of a pottering state of mind and a pottering state of body that for me is very connected to solitude. Thinking about the pleasures of solitude, which are always at risk of suddenly toppling, maybe very quickly, into the unease of solitude. And so perhaps the pleasure of solitude is actually the cheerful toleration of it as opposed to simply the pleasures that you could enumerate, like being able to think, like being able to watch the changing of the light in the evening, whatever it is. Do you have a pleasurable memory of solitude that you would like to share with us? I spent quite a lot of my childhood very happily looking out of the window, mostly by myself, at the birds in the garden and being really incredibly 
excited, thrilled, consoled, etc., by the fact that they arrived and flew away entirely of their own volition. When I turned 27, I walked from Ramsgate to Margate by myself. I just felt this really strong desire to be alone. And, um, and it was March and the beaches weren't very busy. It was still a bit cold and it was extraordinary. I felt like I saw things like the cliffs and the, the sort of the white chalky sides of the cliffs as, as they met the sea and I can still feel the sharp quality of the air and there is I suppose a, a vividness to my memory that I think is very much connected with my having been alone and walking alone at that time that the impressions that I received were were so bright and saturated What makes us feel lonely? Not being understood, not being able to share emotions and experiences with others, not having someone to make us laugh. We are deeply social creatures. Humans are made to experience the emotions of others. We represent in ourselves the emotions of others in our own physiology. And we're constructed to share experiences together. And not having that, I think, has a deep impact on us. In a way, the question might need to be the other way around, which is, when it doesn't occur to me to feel lonely, what are the preconditions for that? And they might be something to do with fundamental feeling of safety. I wonder if, uh, if feeling lonely is one way of reminding ourselves what we want or need and that the experience of being lonely is almost a reminder or a messenger of something that we find ourselves uh, desiring or lacking, or perhaps a, a desire that we haven't really been able to articulate to ourselves. There's a remark made by the poet Marianne Moore, and she says something terribly simple. She says, it is better to be lonely than to be unhappy, by which she means it is better to be lonely on one's own than to be unhappy in company or to be unhappy in a relationship, which for me, that's the most acute form of loneliness. The loneliness of being with somebody, I always think of as the sharpest form of loneliness. 
because it carries with it a feeling of it ought not to be like this. Whereas feeling lonely when you're alone is something that you, over the years, develop a range of strategies for dealing with. It could be a difference in history if you're carrying quite a complicated, complex past with you and the people around you don't really know about it or don't really think about it, then perhaps there can be something alienating or isolating about being the presence of those people because I guess that that lack of familiarity or that lack of knowledge may also be experienced as a lack of care. Being alone can be pleasurable, nourishing, etc. Whereas being lonely can be very painful. Of course, there can be longing in it. And I think it'd be a shame for somebody not to be able to enjoy missing people. So there's a sense in which loneliness is also a good way of thinking about people. I was a junior researcher and I was invited to Florence for a scientific society to give a talk. And I didn't really know anyone there. I gave my talk didn't go brilliantly. I was very genial and it was a big symposium. In the evening, I was surrounded by researchers. It was a sort of science disco with a science band and everyone seemed to be dancing and laughing. And I sat on a wall just outside so I could see into this room and hear the music and watch everyone look like they were having so much fun. And I could also see out onto Florence and I remember thinking how beautiful the place was and how happy everyone else seemed and how sad I felt inside. And that deep sense of loneliness, watching everybody else have fun, really has stayed with me. And again, I think this really highlights that loneliness is about the disconnect with how everyone else seems around you and how you feel yourself. And the bigger that disconnect is, the more lonely you feel. Have the effects of the pandemic made you think any differently about solitude? Oh, gosh. I mean, just how much I love being with people and how much I love being with people. Even if there is no real interaction, I just love them being there. I love being on a train and being surrounded by people, walking down the street, and the little interactions that you have. I miss those sort of inner shop. And now when we have interactions out in the world in our small excursions for food, there's just a sort of edge and people don't seem to be connecting in the same way. The world seems to divide between those who find virtual presence quite okay and those who don't and find it productive of disappointment or sadness or a feeling of thin insufficiency when they click that leave button and then you're back to the, the full presence of solitude. But it's not a full presence of solitude which has just been satisfied by being with another person in real life. I suppose it's because human company breaks the antithesis 
completely between the single speaker and the listener. It brings to the front the thing which I found missing during months of lockdown, which is a whole intuitive, under-described middle ground. You know, the unconscious extends between people, but also a whole kind of presence or sympathy or receptivity or companionship, even though not a word might be said, can exist between, between people. I think it's made one very aware of the sociability one craves and the sociability one can happily do without. And I think lots of people feel that quite a lot of their social lives feel sort of compulsory and are actually undesired. So the net result of the lockdown for some people hopefully will be that they live differently and that they only see people whose company they really enjoy. We started thinking about this podcast series on the spaces of solitude well before we could have even imagined a pandemic like this one. I think it has brought into focus uh, questions related to, to class and privilege, how particular sections of the population have to live in areas with more air pollution and with crowded housing and uh, not very good health or social services. And that any experience of solitude would very much be embedded within all of this. I think what, what the pandemic has also made me think about is, is how separation, for example, separation experienced by migrants is also very shaped by what is going on in the places where they perhaps have friends or family and how things like political conflict or injustice in a place from which you may be removed physically can still so profoundly shape how you experience your immediate environment and indeed your solitude even if removed physically from what is going on elsewhere. And so I think these questions of politics and of class and of social justice have perhaps never more been intertwined with the ways in which we think about solitude. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Pathologies of Solitude Project at Queen Mary University of London, generously supported by the Wellcome Trust. The voices you heard were the neuroscientist Sarah Garfinkel, the poet and philosopher Denise Riley, and the psychoanalyst Adam Phillips, as well as the voice of the curator of this podcast and one of the research team on the Pathologies of Solitude Project, Akshi Singh. It was presented by me, Hetta Howes, and produced by Natalie Steed. To listen to more episodes of this podcast series, there are eight in all, or to find our website, just search Solitudes Queen Mary.